Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, we got a great show lined up for everyone today. We're excited to have you here. And I think we should just get right into it because there's, there's this awkward thing where on the audio medium, you can only hear me, but on the visual medium, we post these on Facebook, you can see the guests just sitting here. So we have Elise Krantz, who is sitting and looking at me and saying, all right, when's this introduction going to be over? Elise, hey, how's it going? I'm great, Ian. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm just going to acknowledge that you're here really quickly. Uh, we're going to talk about the AP Capstone program here in this first segment. Uh, in our second segment today, we're going to talk a little bit about the college list and the ideal size of the college list. And then we'll also talk about how you can attack those final college costs in our finance segment uh, here at the end of our show today. But we wanted to start with the Capstone program, which is kind of ironic because the Capstone program is an end point of a high school career typically, but we're kicking off our show with it. Uh, and Elise, you have done a not insignificant amount of research to identify sort of the ins and outs of the AP Capstone program and how students can take advantage of it as a part of their high school curriculum. So maybe you can just help to reacquaint me with the program and to introduce our listeners if they have not heard of AP Capstone before, uh, help them understand a little bit about what it is exactly. Right. So the reason this came up um, in the first place was because a lot of folks on the team, we have some experience with the IB curriculum, mm -hmm. right? The International right. Baccalaureate. And we have a lot of familiarity with AP exams. Um, but a few years ago, there was sort of this new arrival on the scene within the AP world um, called AP Capstone. And it's comprised of two classes, AP Seminar which is usually taken in 10th or 11th grades mm -hmm. and then followed sometimes by AP research. And that's usually taken the year right after. So in 11th or 12th. And then if you take both of these theoretically and you do well on the exams, you can get something that's called the AP capstone diploma. Now the diploma also includes qualifying scores, I think for other AP classes as well, right? So you have to, I think, have four other scores of three or better in AP English or AP Calc or any other of the more traditional AP classes alongside research and seminar, right? Exactly. So it definitely, it's more than just a one and done, take a class and you've earned this diploma. You have to have essentially six AP classes minimum, including AP seminar and AP research with the qualifying scores to get the so-called diploma. To get the diploma. And this, you know, for those who are unfamiliar with IB, there are six classes in an IB diploma, plus a theory of knowledge and an extended essay. They usually span two years. And if you complete those to a satisfactory level with, with your scores, then you get the IB diploma. So for a lot of us who were familiar with IB, this felt like a very similar kind of structure to that program. Uh, what are some of the differences? I, I guess, yeah, what are some differences? I, I'm going to table the, the comment that I had there for a second, but what are some of the differences between what you see with the AP Capstone program and, and the IB program? 
Well, I think one of the big differences on my end is that because AP seminar and research classes are so new, not all high schools have necessarily the staff trained to deal with these classes. Yeah. Um, and colleges don't always know how to interpret them. I feel like yeah. IB is so well known, so understood. Um, but on the AP side, nobody's quite sure if these classes are worth it or if they are worth it, are colleges viewing them as such? So I think that's, I mean, I can't speak as much to the content of the classes. I never personally sat in these classes, um, but at least from that side of it, I think it, it can be a little hard to know exactly what to do with these classes. Right. IB has been around for so long and it's been a curriculum that's used all over the world. And so there's, there's something about it that admission officers just kind of know you're really dialed into that content, even though they have made some changes recently um, with, with AP capstone, it is so new and it feels like it's, it's because it's so rarely available at high schools. It's not something that I think people have had to be particularly familiar with. Um, and from my perspective, Elise, you know, the fact that it's not a widely available program suggests that there is something about that content that's really specialized, right? You have to be trained in order to do the AP SEM and do the AP research class. There is an expectation that teachers have a certain content knowledge in order to be able to teach that. They're not just throwing it into the curriculum pool and saying, hey, go ahead and take this class. Um, so I think that that is, is good, but it also means that a lot of students probably have not encountered it, um, even at their AP-focused schools. Um, is this something that students should be worried about if their high school offers AP classes, but doesn't offer AP capstone? Should parents be clamoring for this to be added into their curriculum? I think the way that most colleges would view the AP's capstone in, the, in that sense is it's, it's a bonus. It's an add-on. Um, it's a great extracurricular, not extracurricular, it's a great elective, let's say, within yeah. the AP track. Um, so it's not designed to replace in most circumstances, it's not designed to replace, let's say your AP English class, let's say, right? You shouldn't not take um, an AP history or an AP language class because you're now all of a sudden pursuing the capstone diploma. Yeah. It is meant to um, be in addition to those classes. And it's, you know, it's, I think it can offer some nice values in terms of what it's teaching students. A lot of, I find when I did look into the curriculum a little bit for the AP seminar, a lot of it is, it is about, learning how to be a good consumer of information. So mm. looking at different sources, learning how to analyze them, thinking about the, the same content, but from different perspectives. So it's not a straight up English class, but there are some colleges who actually do consider AP seminar as, if, as an English class, mm. um, but it's, I, I do think of it more as an add-on instead of a replacement. And I wonder if that is because there's so it's so reading intensive, it can be very writing intensive. And so the skill sets that you're using in AP seminar are really similar to English, even though an English literature course is going to be much more focused on a particular kind of reading and writing and literary analysis. Um, I think that's I think that's really interesting. But your point about a replacement, I think, makes a lot of sense. This is a way of almost investigating areas of interest in greater detail, exploring more fully, but it's not something that should come in and displace the more traditional core academic classes that we would expect students to have. And it can um, be great too for a student who has a real passion or an interest in a particular area that they would like to study because the, the second 
part of the, the diploma, the, the research class does culminate in a big research paper that then mm. has to be presented. So it's up to the student to think about, well, what would I like to present on? What would I like to research? So for students who have a real love of learning and would like the idea of diving deep, have that have um, who are very self-directed and would like to be able to have a, a chance to, to write a big paper about this, this could be a nice opportunity that you wouldn't necessarily be able to get in an AP traditional AP class that is so structured with the curriculum. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. There is like, there is something about AP that feels very rigid. And this AP capstone program feels a lot more flexible, where there's a lot more opportunity for students to potentially explore. The other thing that I really did like about it is when you whether you're thinking about the IB, or challenging AP classes, there's often a barrier associated with the prerequisite courses that you have to have taken in order to get into that position. And what's cool is that for the schools that offer this AP capstone program, AP seminar actually has no prerequisites that I could see, at least on the AP website. Now, schools might have their own individual rules about this, but I like the idea that a student who maybe has never done an AP class before, but is interested in that level of rigor and inquiry might feel a little bit more confident stepping into AP seminar in 10th or 11th grade than AP chemistry or, you know, AP US history or something along those lines. So there is something that's kind of welcoming about uh, AP seminar as a standalone class. And that and the skills that a student will get in this class, unlike a very traditional AP class that is so focused on just one discipline, the types of research skills you're getting, the writing skills, the critical analysis, those will carry into any subject. And especially at the college level, when you're doing a, a real term paper for the first time, usually those skills can come in handy. So from that standpoint, too, it's it could be a standalone sort of you're just focusing on those classes if you're not doing a lot of other APs. And we get lots of questions we get questions all the time from students about, should I take this class, right? Or what should my curriculum look like? And that's such a hard question to answer because there's so much context that is wrapped up into that conversation. What classes did you take last year? How did you do in them? What are the other classes you're taking next year? What's your plan for your senior year? However, you, however it sort of lays out. Um, with respect to just these classes, AP SEM, AP, AP Research, and the Cole Capstone Program, are there students that you think are better positioned to be able to benefit from this class than other students might be? Um, how do students self-select into the program? So I think for students who are already maxing out on their APs and are taking five or six APs a year, Capstone is probably not for you. Okay. You are you have your course, you know, you're playing school yeah. already. Um, yeah. You know, for students who are looking for college credit. I would not necessarily recommend AP Capstone either because there are a lot of colleges out there that are not awarding credit for these particular classes. And if you're looking for an easy AP because you've never taken one, I would say this may not be the best choice for you either because there is a lot of work involved. Um, but for a student who does like to learn, who's curious, um, who enjoys writing, this could be a nice option for to add into their curriculum. Maybe there's a sort of a scenario where you have felt like you've had some struggles with other course areas um, and you're not feeling as confident in that space. And this could be something where you can show a college, I can handle rigorous inquiry, but it, it, it's in a context where I might feel a little bit more comfortable, where I'm not boxed in by the expectations of biology or, or history, but I get a little bit more room to grow. That doesn't mean that this is a totally open-ended, you know, wide open program, of course, but I think that there is something to that, that exploration. Um, 
I wanted to, it's really interesting the way that you laid that out because I've got these four bullet points that are on the College Board website that says participating in AP Capstone can help students. And the first thing they say is stand out to colleges in the application process. And it sounds like what you're saying and what I would tend to agree with is that maybe that's not quite accurate, especially not yet um, as Capstone is so rare and is still kind of figuring out what it's going to be. What do you think about that? So if, you know, for colleges that aren't awarding credit for Capstone, and we can talk about some colleges that do and some that don't, I think seeing the words on the transcript, AP Research, AP Seminar, I do think that will stand out because it's not a traditional class. So from, you know, from, from that very basic standpoint, it's sort of, it's not your regular English class. It is a little different, Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it's then going to be up to the student to then take it a step further and either explain whether it's in an essay, whether it's on the additional information section of the common application to say, here's what I did in this class. Here's what I took out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's room to help you stand out, but it's not automatically going to sort of signal to colleges, look at me, I'm taking the toughest classes available at my high school. It's just, it's an interesting piece. It's an interesting component, I would say. So you're agreeing with the idea that this could help students stand out insofar as it may be rare, but maybe not like a standout as like a positive, like this will benefit your application significantly if you make this choice. And I really do appreciate what you were saying about those students who've already got a stacked curriculum of APs. Adding this on top of that probably is not a value add for the overall curriculum, especially given the time you're already devoting to your other courses. Right, right. I I think... um... I think it's still a nice, it's not a negative. So, you know, you saying, is it going to be the huge positive that the college board says it is? I don't, not necessarily, but it's not a negative. So, you know, students shouldn't avoid this class thinking what's never going to help me. I think there's a lot of positives that can come out of it, but it's not going to be automatic. I think that's right. I think you're right. So then the next two bullet points, which I think it sounds like we're more inclined to agree with are that AP Capstone will develop key academic skills that students will use in college and beyond. You already basically said that in in even more eloquent language. And then helping students to become self-confident, independent thinkers and problem solvers, which I think is another potential byproduct of the program, of course, dependent on the teaching uh, structure of the class. But then the last bullet is you can earn college credit. Many colleges offer credit for qualifying scores. And you've already been like, hold on a second. Let's not get ahead of ourselves in terms of what credit may be awarded by AP Capstone. Right. So for those students who are familiar already with with AP credits, one of the easiest ways to find out if colleges award credit for your particular AP score, you go onto the college's website, you look up their AP credit policy. Some schools, it's a three and higher, others it's a four or a five. Um, But when I was researching for who gives credit for seminar and research, it was a really mixed bag. Um, More colleges will give credit to AP seminar than they will to AP research. Hmm. That was interesting. And then there was sort of like an equal number of schools that were saying, yes, we will accept this credit. And those that are saying, we won't even acknowledge it. And, and it wasn't even just the, the more selective versus less selective. It was across the board. So just some examples like MIT and Penn State and the University of California system, they will accept seminar and research as credits if you get the right score. But for Boston University, Case Western, University of Maryland, Northwestern, like they won't. So it's, it's sort of, you have to, you can also search for this on the college board website. And there's a list of high schools that offer 
the AP seminar and research classes, as well as colleges that will accept these credits. Right. And there are none. I, I was looking at that list earlier today. There are none in Portland uh, that offer AP seminar or research. There are some in the other parts of the state, only I think six mm. in all of Oregon. Um, and so it's not something that is widely available yet and not something I think that you should be clamoring to add to your program um, if you're a student. And I also think at least just, I mean, we could do a whole segment on this, but the idea of college credit as being something that you're really striving for in high school, it doesn't always confer, I think, the kind of value that we hope that it will, um, even if we get it from a school. Like, and, and I'm thinking in terms of like helping us to get out of prerequisite courses that we might have to take or satisfying credits that we need to graduate or helping us to graduate early so that we can save some money on tuition. It doesn't always pan out in the way that we hope that it will. Um, so mostly, it sounds like today, if your school offers AP Capstone, it's really about the content of the class and the experience of the class would be the reason that you would choose to take it, as opposed to these external benefits for admission or for credit. At least the jury's out on that. Does that sound fair? Yeah. that, that and, and also the teacher, right? Because if it's one of your favorite teachers or if it's a, a beloved teacher at the school and you've never had a chance to take a class for them, this could be a great chance to try something new, push yourself a little bit, get prepared for college um, and enjoy the, enjoy the experience. So as always, the answer is it depends. It depends. <laughs> it depends on all these circumstances. At least that was a lot of fun. Uh, thanks for coming uh, on the show today and talking us through AP Capstone. My pleasure. Thanks. All right, folks, when we come back, we will talk about how many colleges should be on your list and when you know you have too many. So don't go away. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one -on -one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, folks, welcome back to this week's episode of Getting In, college coach conversation. We're going to open up our office hours at this point in the show, which is something we like to do, especially in the fall, to talk about sort of recurring topics within college admission, college finance, and just to help get some perspective from some of our expert educators on things that students might be thinking about at any given point in the application cycle. Uh, and so joining us today, I think 
maybe you were selected, Jen, by the producer of the show because you were going to disagree with me the most often uh, or the most strongly. I don't know. But it's great to have Jen Simons here on the show. She is a longtime college admission expert, one of our great educators here at College Coach. Hey, Jen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we wanted to talk today about... I think an area where there is a lot of curiosity on the part of students and families, a lot of maybe consternation on the part of schools and counselors, and that is how many colleges should be on my college list? Um, Maybe this can be a quick segment. Maybe you've got a number that you're thinking of right now, and it's a magic number. We can just give it and go go to break. But what do you think about that question in general? So the college list should be very different from the college application list. So the number of schools on the list, I mean, it starts off at 50, it gets to 40, 30. I mean, the, the, the common app allows for 20 colleges on the list. That doesn't mean you're going on the queue on the dashboard. That doesn't mean you're going to be applying to 20. And I don't think you should be applying to 20. Um, but that number is going to be different from the one that ultimately, you know, concludes the college application process. I can't predict if you are going to agree or disagree, but I've changed my thinking about this um, in the past three years that I've been with Bright Horizons College Coach. Um, I All I care about as an educator is that there are a few colleges on the list um, two, three, I don't think it should just be one. Ideally, it could just be one, but it's not going to just be one. But let's say you have two or three colleges that fit the following criteria. I know you can get accepted Mm -hmm. to the extent that we can know anything. So some level of predictability, usually this comes with state schools, um, not necessarily, but some level of predictability. Um, I know you can be accepted. I know your family can afford it. And I know that you would be happy going there, that you'd like to go there. It's a good, it's a, it feels good to you when you say the name of the school, when you visit, I don't care about anything else. I know that sounds weird. Now there should be, there, there can often be other, you know, factors. For example, if your family would like to compare aid packages, be it merit aid or need-based financial aid, you probably should have some more. I'll let my finance colleagues weigh in on that when you speak to them. But um, at the end of the day, this whole concept of reach schools, I I don't even like that term because to me, it implies you're not reaching, you're not aiming high enough if the school that you like is also someplace that can accept you. So, So I think that if you come to me and say, I want to go to my state university, you've told me and my high school guidance counselor has told me that it would be an excellent fit for me based on past statistics. People have gotten in with similar GPAs, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm applying to a major that's not oversubscribed. Whatever the case is, I think one, two or three. But that's probably not what the, that's, I don't want to stop talking, as you can tell. Yeah, so you're, you're just going. No, it's fine. I, I, I thought go. you were just going to give me a number. And here you've given me a longer answer. No, I think this is more interesting because there are a few things that you've said that I think are really great for us to pick apart and kind of dive into. I think that it's really important. I want to pick up on the first thing you said. It's got to be more than one, typically, that we're really confident in that fit into this category predictable, likely to admit you. And I think the reason for that is you can really 
like a school. But if you only get into that school and you get denied everywhere else, suddenly that school just psychologically doesn't feel as exciting to you. And so there's always a better feeling when you get to make a choice. If I've got two shirts to choose from for the day, I feel like I'm making a choice as opposed to I only have one shirt left and everything else is in the laundry. So we want students to be in a position where they get to make a decision at the end of this process. And if you only apply to one school where you're really likely to be admitted, even if you really like it, there is a circumstance where you could be denied everywhere except for that one school. And I think that that's just not going to leave you with positive feelings about the outcome, even if the school still is great. Um, can I play devil's advocate? Totally because can. That's why I'm here. So you've already made that choice. So again, I so I'm sort of fighting myself by saying you should. You, you definitely need to apply to more than one school. Mm-hmm. But I, what about like so? Let's leave it at three schools. What if you have three schools? Mm-hmm. You know, you're making a choice. Like you know, you're yes. already saying this is my choice. This is my decision. I like these schools. I'm going to go ahead and apply. Like I don't. I don't think you should apply to any schools just to apply any schools that you don't like. So that, you know, and I a hundred percent agree with you. If you get denied by, um, you know, a a lot of schools and that's frequently what happens when students say, well, and I've had students say this, even, you know, this year in the unknowns of COVID and the selectivity getting more selective, I've had students, a mother said, well, if he applies to 20 schools, he has to get in somewhere, right? No, this isn't no. that if you play the lottery 200 times, it doesn't mean I'm not saying that the college is like the lottery, but but even, I'm not a mathematician by any stretch. And even I know, like statistically, that's not how it works. Like you don't increase your odds. Um, no, I'm sorry. that's, because, I'm, that's yeah. because each school reads your application independently. So the fact that you apply to 20 or 30 or 40 schools doesn't influence how that each of those schools independently make their own decision about your application. When you're in a lottery, if you buy 200 lottery tickets, that is 200 tickets out of whatever the total number of possibilities would be. So you are increasing your chances. But for every given school, applying to more schools doesn't increase your chances of getting into any single one. It's not as though Stanford and MIT and Caltech get together and say, okay, we've got this student who's applied to all three. So we want to try and improve that student's chances. They're all reading independently. And so there's no way that other school, applying to more schools are going to increase your chances in total, um, unless you happen to have a higher chance of getting into one of those schools that you pick. But even that, I think, is is unlikely when we're talking about the most selective schools, which is where this kind of approach tends to pop up most often. Ian, what's so interesting, so you're, of course, I I said I wasn't a mathematician. You're right. It does increase your odds if you play the lottery 200 times. However, however, the odds are still so small that it's still so unlikely. This is, okay, so I'm creating a new analogy as I go on. And what's interesting is that when I have purchased lottery tickets, two things happen. This might be a gen thing, but I think there are other people that are going to agree with this. I am convinced that I am going to win $800 $800 million or a mil- whatever it is. I am convinced like, that mm-hmm. I am going to win it. Like I tell the person behind the counter, like only sell me a good one. I know I'm going to win. But uh-huh. at the same time, I know what the odds are. And I know that chances I've never won before. I, I probably am not going to win, but like it still feels that way. And I wonder if it doesn't feel that way for kids that are applying to these super duper highly selective schools with this dichotomy of like, 
I know that the chances are incredibly small, but I still think I'm going to win. I'm going to be really disappointed, even though I know I'm not going to win when I don't win. Do you know what I mean? And I'm not, God, I'm doing what I don't want. And I'll let you talk, I promise. But I'm doing what I don't want you to do. I'm not equating winning the lottery with getting into a selective school. Please, like, don't, this is totally separate, okay? Oh, I know what you're saying. And, and, and that sense of confidence. I mean, it reminds me of that scene from Dumb and Dumber where he says, <laughs> you know, one out of a hundred, just like more like one out of a million. He's like, there, so there's a chance, you know? Um, and I think, I think that the issue is that it's not about astronomically small chances that are non-zero. I think for most students who are applying to really, really selective schools, the chances are zero. And that's a hard conversation to have. And I think where I get concerned and coming back to this idea about the scope of the list is the more schools you apply to, the more work you have to do, the more essays you have to write the more that you're dividing your attention. And so where, you know, I said that these schools are really independent. They're independent in the way that they're making decisions. The fact that you apply to 20 schools doesn't impact your one school, but from a workload standpoint, if you have to divide your attention across 20 schools instead of across 10, Mm -hmm. that's going to depreciate the quality of your work because you're going to have to be more efficient which means that you're not tackling each essay with the same level of vigor and commitment and interest. And so maybe you have no chance of getting into Stanford, but writing those eight essays takes your attention away from that one essay you have to write for BU. And now your BU essay is 80% as good as it could have been instead of 100% as good as it could have been. And now you're hurting your chances at BU because you've given less time to that as you're scrambling to make the deadline. Oh, absolutely. That's one thing that I worry about with this idea of students saying, well, I'm going to apply to a lot of schools and just see what happens because there is work that's associated with that process. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And if the, even if there's no extra work, even if it's a common app situation with no supplements or anything like that, you still need to be doing the work to understand what you like about the school. You still need to be doing the virtual or in-person tours and information sessions. You know, there's no reason to inflate those numbers for your friends. You know, if you're going to oh. think about it that way, like we could go off at a whole thing. I mean, I, I, to answer your first question, like in a very simple way, what I usually tell families, is like eight, 10. Like if I have to give you a number, that's what I say. So you should have like a nice, I'm an even number person. I know that's weird. I can't even imagine applying to an odd number of schools. It makes my, you know, like, I don't know. It's weird. I'm a weird, you you know, whatever. But so eight, 10, if you want to apply to nine and creep me out, you can. But at the end of the day, like there's no reason to apply to more than that. If you apply sort of well, um, I don't know. I think you're right. I mean, I, I work in this, we obviously, we both work in the admissions profession and it would be, it would, it, you know, you would assume that in this space, people have a heightened interest in the admission process for individual people. And I've been asked lots of times where I went to college. I've never been asked where else I got in to hmm. college. I've, nobody's ever proactively asked me that. And so a lot of students, I think that there's this moment in your senior year of high school where decisions are coming back and you think about, oh, I'm going to get into 10 schools and I'm going to tell everybody I got into these 10 schools. And you know how long that matters for? Like a month. Yeah. And then after that, you decide where you're going to go. And that becomes the school that you connect with, where you make your friends, where you get your education. And so I think a lot of students hold on to this idea of like, I'm getting into so many institutions that, that ultimately doesn't matter. We want to put you in a position where you can get to the right place for you. 
And ultimately that's going to be one school. And I, I would suggest that you have a better chance of finding that right one school if your list is shorter, because to your point, researching, understanding, feeling that fit with the school is going to be more likely if you commit to that research process. Totally. I'll also make an argument, and this is very micro and it's end of the process, but you also probably won't if you're a good kid. And I'm sure are the people that are listening are the parents that are Definitely. listening want their kids to be good. You're not going to, you're of course, you're not going to brag about where you got in because the kids sitting next to you, your best friend, they didn't get into those schools or your, you didn't get into those schools and you don't want them to be like, I got into X, Y, Z. Like this process, it's more emotional than transactional in a lot of ways. And at a lot of points in time. And I think at that end point, Oh my gosh, it's, it's enormously emotional. You yeah. know, so you want to be gentle with your friends. And that's, that's a thing that like that emotional honesty, I think is something that I really want to reinforce for kids, because I do think that idea of I'll be happy with this one school, even if I only get in here, I think you can intellectualize that okay. sitting in November, December of your senior year. But when April comes around, if that's the only school where you've gotten an offer, it's going to feel a little bit more crushing than you probably anticipate. And so you just got to be ready for like, realistically, how I'm going to, how am I going to feel about this? Uh, and that's, that's hard to predict. So I, I always have parents know your kids, right? Mm -hmm. Karen Spencer will always say, how many yeses do you need? And how many no's can you handle? Which I love. Mm -hmm. um, and I, th I think that, that every school, every kid's going to have a different answer to that question. Um, but, but know thyself when you're putting this plan together. Um, what about the kids, though, that apply early and they're only getting hopefully one yes and then they're done? Do you think, and I'm, I'm asking you this in a genuine way, that they're going to see all those acceptances in April from their peers who didn't apply early or didn't get in somewhere early and they're like, oh, I should have, I should, you know. Just Sometimes. I think there can be some buyer's remorse from students who, who, especially if they're choosing ED for a strategic reason. Mm. Right? They say, I want to get into this. I got to increase my chances. So I got to apply ED as opposed to, this is my favorite school. If I get in here, I don't care what else happens. I'm going for it. I think that's the reason to do it. The strategic reason can leave you in that position in April where you're like, oh, I wish I'd, I'd found out if I could have got into some other schools. Um, so you have to think about that. I always ask students when they want to apply ED Gen, like, how would you feel if you got in everywhere? Yeah. Would you still choose this school? And they're like, yeah, that's my favorite. All right, great. Then ED is right for you. But if you want to consider these possibilities, then we have to be a little bit more um, smart about whether we use that ED option or not. Sure. Um, what about, uh, is there setting aside, let's say that it costs nothing to apply to college. And let's say that there were no supplemental essays. It sounds like you still would place a restriction on how many schools students should choose to apply to. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. If I could start a movement, if I could like get in touch, all right, high school students, listen to me. It will help everyone. The UCAS, the British system, they let you apply to four or five schools, depending on the major. And I think it's fabulous. There's no reason. This is, I mean, I'm guilty, right? Like, what is my job to, well, hopefully it's not my job to perpetuate. It's not your insanity. job. It's the opposite. But I am on, I'm on the side of, I certainly was when I worked in admissions, but Ian, 
there's no reason. There's no reason to apply to so many schools. If you do your research, if you create, I mean, COVID aside, not being able to visit, like those are reasons, That's but true. That's true. you know, you know what? I would love it if, if schools, if high schools, how about that? High school guidance counselors, are you listening? You put a limit for the good of your school. And some schools do this. They say, we don't let our schools apply to more than yeah. eight or whatever. Oh, fabulous. It makes each application so much more, valuable to me. It really does. And it treats the process so much more holistically. And I'll call out, there's a school called Bellarmine Prep, uh, Mm -hmm. which is in in, uh, San Jose. And I remember speaking to their counselor and she just said, we don't let our, we don't sponsor our students to apply to more than eight colleges. So if they need a letter of recommendation from us, if they need the transcript to be sent, we will say, what are your eight schools? This, these are the eight that we're going to send it. And I think a lot of parents and students might look at that and say, this is unfair. Like I only get one shot at this. And I think you've just got to reorient your thinking. This is not playing the lottery where you need to buy more tickets. This is about finding that best fit for you. It's more like asking somebody to the dance, right? You don't ask every, every girl in your grade if they'll go to the dance with you. You find the one person who you most want to go with, who's most likely to say yes, and, and you find that, that match, right? So I, I think it's a little bit, I like that idea of narrowing things down. And it sounds like your focus on these two or three schools to start with is more about being happy about these options and really thinking about those pragmatically, thoughtfully, and with heart, and not just about saying, okay, we'll take care of these three and then stack up as many as you want and and apply wherever you'd like. Can I afford it? Would I like it? Would I be happy? You know, like that's, can I get accepted? That's, those are the questions. And so, it's not bad, Ian, one more quick thing. It's not bad to love a school that will accept you. Like, it's not, you know what I mean? Like that, it, it's good to love a school that will accept you. That makes them better and you better. It's, you know. That's a great point. And I have to remind kids sometimes, like the reason that we consider this no problem for you to get into is because you've kicked butt through high school. Like you've had a great academic record. So this school looks at you and says, we want that kid. That's a good thing, right? We don't need to have this, desire to reach for these schools. Um, so, you know, I love that idea. You're sort of taking down the idea of reach schools. You're, you're really helping students to think more about what these schools are that they can predict, where they can be happy. Um, any other like little pearls of wisdom that you want to make sure that people have before we go to break? Ah, that's hard. That's like when parents ask you, what haven't I asked you that I should I don't know. Good luck. Pearls of wisdom. I mean, it's, it's the beginning of September, you know, take a breath and just think seniors next year, you'll be in college. Like this has an end date. That's my best sort of advice. So as stressful as it gets, um, it's not a reflection on who you are as a human being and it's going to be over and you're going to be a college student. This is the first step, not the last. So your final answer on number of schools, eight or 10 must be even can't be odd. That's my personal. I don't like odd numbers. People like 13, seven. What? Do you, what? Oh my God. That gives, you know, no. So that's, it's weird. Seven's my favorite number. And I of think probably the ideal number of colleges to apply to, but I draw a line with 10. Okay. And that's because I want to make sure that you know and want to attend every school you apply to. And cause you need to balance out that work. So I hope y'all didn't have to fast forward just to get to our numbers. 10 oh, for no, me, eight or 10 for Jen. Uh, but you got all of the rationale along the way. So Jen, that was great. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. 
All right, folks, when we come back, we are going to talk about paying those bills for college. Like Jen said, got to make sure you can afford it, right? So we'll ask uh, Lori Peltier to join us uh, for that segment. Don't go anywhere. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right. Thanks. Thanks for sticking with us, everyone, as we, we make our way through this, this show today. We're here in the final segment. We're going to talk a little bit about what to do when you've got a little bit of that balance still remaining on your college bills. And uh, joining me to help talk us through that is Lori Peltier. Hey, Lori, how's it going? I'm good, Ian. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing a lot better than I think I would be if I had a college bill <laughs> and there was some balance remaining. That is some scary, scary stuff to think about. Now, um, sometimes we'll see these segments from finance and, and you all as a team get together and think about what are some some topics that people will be especially interested in learning about at a given point in the year. Um, re- remaining balance on college bills coming up here in September how is this something that uh, families are are sort of engaging with and encountering uh, with their their college bound students? Well, believe it or not, it does happen pretty frequently. I remember in the old days when I was on a college campus, we would always have one or two families who was scrambling. You know, they're moving mm-hmm. in, and in the excitement of moving in, they kind of just ignored or missed or you know did some bad math, and they thought they were all set, and they were not. Um, And one of the reasons is that all the communication, and I'm sure we've talked about this a million times, the communication uh, from the college goes to the student. So the student's Uh, getting the bill. The student's getting. (laughs) (laughs) So he's like, yes, mom and dad, everything's fine. I don't have any emails from the college. And lo and behold, there's a balance due. But I think the two important things is uh, one would be the college doesn't want to lose you at this point. They're not going to send you home. Most of the time, you know, they've put a lot of time and effort into recruiting you, getting you through the admission process, getting you to deposit, and getting you through orientation. They don't want you to leave September 1st when school starts. Um, They're going to work with you. Um, But on the other hand, they are a business, and they need to make money to stay in business, so they do want your money. I think the most important thing is, you know, if you've missed the deadline date for the bill, contact the school. 
Each school has a different name for it. It's either the bursar's office or the student accounts office, the cashier's office. Um, Whoever on campus is collecting the bill, just let them know you're aware of it, you're working on it, maybe get an extension, find out when they're going to start to impose late fees Mm. and what those late fees are so you know how urgent it is to get it resolved. Gotcha. So what I'm hearing from you is that you can't ignore your bills and hope that they'll just miss you. Even in a school of 60,000 people, probably not feasible. Correct. All right. So we got to pay our college bills. Now, I think if it's something that I've just overlooked, you know, there've been a couple of instances where I've forgotten to pay bills and I was, oh my gosh, I missed the deadline. I'll reach out. It's like, I, I got the money. I'll just let me send it over to you and it's no problem. But I think that there are potentially some circumstances where things could be different for a family where they might say, you know, circumstances have changed for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about financial aid at this stage? What what can families do? Is it too late once you've arrived on campus and the semester has essentially started for you to get some more funding? So it may not be too late. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's worth a reach out to the financial aid office. If you've already applied and received some aid, but it's not enough, go back and ask for more, explain yeah. why you might need more, what circumstances might have changed. And this year, there is COVID money, money from mm-hmm. the government that was issued to college financial aid offices to give to those families who had unique circumstances. You know, the family was affected by COVID some way financially, and the yeah. student needs additional funding. So if that's your case, definitely go back and ask for that. Um, the other thing to make sure is that they have applied all of your financial aid to the bill. You know, ask them to sit down with you and go over line by line. Did that scholarship hit the bill? Did that grant, did this full student loan, is that being deducted? You know, mistakes can happen. So make sure that everything's been applied as a deduction to your bill before you assume that you owe all of it. Can I ask you a quick question there? Sometimes work study is folded into a financial aid package. Now, do they predict what that work study money will be for that student over the course of the year and apply that to the bill at the beginning, or is that something that accrues and then gets goes toward the bill later on? Both are incorrect. It is <laughs> the <That's> work study. <laughs> why I'm not the expert. <laughs> the work study money is not applied to the bill at all. Okay. It is paid to the student in a paycheck. Okay, gotcha. So the, you don't get any of the money until you've earned it, until you've worked the hours and received a paycheck. And the money, again, goes to the student in a paycheck so that they can buy their books or maybe a bus pass or maybe go to the movies or whatever expenses okay. they have. So it generally um, will, will kind of cover these additional supplemental expenses that are associated mm-hmm. with college but are not directly at- attached to tuition and room and board and fees. Correct. Correct. Okay. Now, if I'm a parent, how do I get that money from my kid? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Make question. sure that comes straight to my bank account. <laughs> right. um, now, let's say that you've still got a balance. You've requested aid. You um, have done what you can to pay, but you're still in a position where there is a gap. Uh, what do you do at this point? Um, as you've said, we don't, we don't want to, as admission professionals and, and college uh, officials, we don't want to send students home. So what are some options that you have at this, this point? So you could try to work with the school to come up with a payment plan. Mm. Uh, Majority of colleges have a payment plan. At this point in time, it being September, it's a little late to join a payment plan, but they may make exceptions. Um, They might charge you a little fee to join the payment plan. Um, 
but they won't charge you any interest on the outstanding balance. And that might give you, you know, the first payment might be due in October, and then you have to pay November and December, but get caught up before the semester ends. I think the important thing is that if you don't pay the bill and the semester ends, the student is not going to be able to register for spring semester classes if they have an outstanding bill. So that really is the drop dead date of um, when you have to have it resolved because otherwise they won't be able to continue as a student and register for the future. And that sort of is the mechanism that colleges have in place is Mm -hmm. their recourse is to say, well, we're not going to let you register. We're going to lock you out of the system Mm -hmm. until that bill is paid. And that usually gets the attention of the student. I would imagine. (laughs) If all these emails aren't working, when I I can't register, that's the issue. Uh, Now, accruing interest, um, that's something that you said, if you get on a payment plan, you might be able to avoid that. Um, Mm -hmm. But what happens if you're in a position where there is that gap, you're not on a payment plan because it's not available to you or you elected not to do so. Mm -hmm. And we're going through months of time where there's money owed. What does that look like in terms of uh, interest? Well, So I think the other part of the interest that I want to talk about before I forget is that the loans that are available, we haven't talked about, there are loans that you could borrow. I mean, maybe at this point you've decided you don't qualify or that's not the plan you want to take, but there are several different loans from different sources that you could borrow, private loans, federal loans. If the parents um, have a problem with their credit history and they can't borrow because of their credit history, they could try for a parent plus loan and get denied. I've met many families who go through the process just to get denied so the student can borrow more on their student loan. Hmm. So there is a mechanism in the federal student loan program that if the parents can't borrow, the student can get an additional $4,000 a year. It's hmm. not a lot, but sometimes it will fill that gap. Yeah, fill that gap. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing to think of is, you know, what is your credit situation? Can you borrow? And if it's not you, there are other loans that the student can take with a co-signer doesn't have to be mom or dad, could be an aunt or uncle or grandparent, if the family is willing to help out to to get that loan in place to cover the balance. But again, they are all accruing interest while the student's in school and during repayment. What is the interest typically that, that colleges charge on outstanding balances and how does that square up with uh, loan interest? So I, I did some checking before today and some of them it's like a flat fee, $150 fine for a past due balance, which depending on how much you owe could be pretty excessive. Um, So I've mostly seen more of a a fee than a percentage. Gotcha. And it could be every month, you know, $20 a month added on as each month goes by that you have a balance. Gotcha. And so that would be true, even if the balance is $75. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's a lot. That's a hefty chunk of the percentage. Right. Um, if it's right. thousands, you probably want to look into these loan options because it's going to be a much larger amount of money that you have to scrape together. Right. Um, what, any other just uh, thoughts or, or advice that, that you have for families that get into these circumstances? I mean, this sounds really stressful. Uh, you know, it sounds like something where it's like you're moving in, you're excited, the student's starting their first week of classes, and you've got this outstanding balance. And if it is as easy as writing a check, then great. But like, for a lot of families, that's probably not the reality. Right. What other advice would you give in this in this circumstance? Well, I think it increases the stress. But if you are going to make a decision to leave the school, to to say, okay, we made the wrong decision, we can't afford this, and we need to go to plan B, whether that's community college or taking a semester off, you need to do it quickly. 
because every day that you're in school, you're still accruing a balance. And most of the refund programs that the schools offer after the first week, you don't get a full refund. So you could leave, but still owe money for those first two weeks of school. And that'd be really difficult Mm -hmm. uh, to think about uh, leaving the school and then still paying them uh, Mm -hmm. in that bill. Um, and then do schools have sort of recourse that are, that is attached to uh, credit history for parents or, or even for students, if they are not able to pay back this balance in a timely fashion? Yes. It can be sent to a collections agency and that would hit your credit score. That's terrible. That would, that's no fun, right? So we want to, we want to try and avoid these circumstances. Now, of course, there's so much that you can do in advance of this circumstance in order to first calculate your net price with an EFC calculator, and then look at schools that offer scholarships and assess these financial aid packages. Lori, what, if people are listening to our show and they, they obviously get great advice from us every week and, and from our, our great finance experts, um, where are some other places that people can go if they want more um, support or advice? I mean, this, this sounds so complicated to me to be able to be aware of all of the ins and outs of this, the plus loan deny to get $4,000 more is like, seems like a very niche piece of expertise to have. Mm-hmm. Um, where else can people go to sort of be uh, aware of this? I would look for some community organizations within your community. Um, uh, for, I'm in Worcester, Massachusetts, and we have the Greater Worcester Community Foundation, which has experts who can help you on the financial aid process and financial funding for college. Uh, the financial aid office at the school, you know, you're their customer. They're going to help you because, again, you've gotten to this point. They want you to be able to afford it and not have a past due balance. So, so they're a good resource. I think your high school counseling office would be a resource as well. That's great. I appreciate that, Lori. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and talking us through all of this. Uh, kind of a difficult scenario, but it sounds like there are some good pathways out of it. So yeah. appreciate that. All right. My pleasure. All right, folks. When we uh, are back next week, we'll have Beth hosting the show once again. We're going to talk about applying to visual arts and fine arts programs. So if you are a creative-minded student who's thinking about pursuing that in college, you won't want to miss that segment. Uh, we're also going to be talking about some supplemental essays. Yeah, it's time to start thinking about those. You finish the personal statement and on to some supplemental pieces. And the age-old question, which, Lori, I imagine you could answer, but we're going to have Alex on to talk about it. Uh, FAFSA, to file or not to file? That is the question. Uh, until that time, please enjoy the start of September. Good luck to all you seniors who are starting to get into the middle of your college application writing process. And we will look forward to joining you next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.